Uh-oh, one, two, there we go. Thank you. Um, in the Bible that Jesus would have carried, um, it, bro- it broke down the, you know, our Bible today is broken down into two parts, what we call the Old Testament, everything before Jesus, and the New Testament, everything after. But the uh, Bible that Jesus had was broken down in two parts called the Law and the Prophets. And the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, had their own books. But these last 12 were all in one book, and it was called the Book of the Twelve. I just thought, isn't that interesting that when God works with his people, when he worked with Israel, he broke them into 12 tribes. Jesus, when he wanted to spread the gospel and start the church, had 12 disciples, later 12 apostles. And here we have the 12, um, the minor prophets. They are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, so uh, you'll find them there. It is God's last word before he sends his son, Jesus, into the world. And without the minor prophets, we wouldn't have a fuller picture of God's mind and God's heart and who he is and what he wants us to know. Today we are going to study Obadiah, and I want to confess to you, Obadiah is a tough read, and it's a tough sermon to preach. Um, You'll see why I say that. I don't want to avoid any part of the Bible. It's all there for a reason. You know, we need to know all of God's message to us. But it's tough because... um, it's kind of like watching one of those difficult movies that's, that, you, that you watch, that you really liked. Uh, for me, I know Saving Private Ryan was that way, Schindler's List. Um, it's a good message. We need to know it. We need to see it and hear it. But we don't look forward to the next time we see it or hear it. Um, and so that's how Eden was for me, uh, preparing the lesson today. Um, also, I did want to say that we have a saying in my Sunday school class that whenever we get to a difficult passage, it seems like I'm always out of town for that difficult section of Scripture. So I get one of my substitutes to teach for me. And what do we say? We say the substitute teacher got weavered. <laughs> well, I think here today as we're walking through the Minor Prophets, I got bruised. <laughs> but we are going to study uh, Obadiah to the best of our abilities here today. Uh, Today's message has a lot to do with brotherly love and and family. Uh, Who in here, just show of hands, who has a brother, or let's just say it this way, who has a sibling? Okay, everybody has a sibling? Who in here has ever had a conflict with your sibling? Wow, I think there's more hands than there were for siblings. Um, It is natural for us in our families to have strife and to have conflict, isn't it? Well, the uh, message today certainly is for you. I've titled the message just privately. Um, You need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, That's a common saying with the kids. It means to take a step back and examine your actions because you're in a potentially dangerous or sticky situation that could get bad very easily. So what do we know about Obadiah? We know it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. And one would think that the shortest book in the Old Testament would lead to the shortest sermon from the Old Testament, but one would be wrong. (laughs) We don't know much about him. We don't know about his family, what his job was before God called him to be a prophet. We do know that his name, Obadiah, means servant of Yah, servant of Yahweh, servant of God. And he is the only prophet not to prophesy to God's people. He prophesies to the Edomites. Okay, the land of Edom, people who lived there were Edomites. Well, who were the Edomites? I've got a chart that uh, he's going to throw up for you. 
You'll see there, when God decided to uh, make a great nation of Abraham, and he said to this man who had no children and was very old, he said, I will make you a great and powerful nation. I want you to go and tell the whole world about my goodness. And he says, it's like the sand at the seashore, or like the stars in the night sky. That's how many offspring you'll have. And he says that to an old man, Abram, who has no children. Well, in his old age, God gives him, of course, you know, Isaac. Isaac, in turn, has two children, twin sons. Jacob and Esau. Now we say Jacob and Esau, but we should say Esau and Jacob because Esau is the older. And we're told when he's born, he has a very red complexion. He's reddish. He's, his arms, his hair, his skin tone is very red. So they named him Esau, which is their word for red. Um, but when he was born, holding on to the heel was his brother Jacob. Jacob means the heel grabber. Okay? In their language, that's also a phrase for somebody who tries to trip other people up so he can take their place, a supplanter. Um, he later changes his name to Israel. We still have the nation of Israel today. Um, Israel means wrestles with God. So he went from wrestling with men to wrestling with God. Esau, I guess, jealous of his brother, wanted to change his name also, changed it to Edom. Edom means red. <laughs> So he changed his name from red to red. And uh, one story I want to tell you because it does work its way into the scripture that we're going to study today. And a lot of you will know this story if you've studied Genesis. But Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau was the older. He was the one who was to inherit the birthright. He was the son of the promise. He was the son of the blessing. And it says when they were young men, there's one day. Now Esau was very much like his father. He liked to be outdoors. He liked to work. He liked to hunt. And one day he had been out hunting all day, didn't, didn't get anything, so he comes back home. The only one home is Jacob. Now it says Jacob, we're told, liked to stay in the tents. He was his mother's favorite. And he's got a bowl of red soup. There's that color red again. And um, Esau comes back. He says, I'm starving to death. Now, that's probably not the case, but that's how he felt. And he says, Jacob, give me a bowl of that red soup. And Jacob says, I'll do it if you'll give me your birthright. Now, the birthright meant that you would get a double portion of the inheritance. So with only two brothers, he would get two-thirds of the inheritance, but also he would get first choice. So he would get the best of the land, this land that God had promised Abraham would be for his great and powerful nation. And it says in the Bible that Esau despised his birthright. Now, I don't know if it's he despised it, but he traded it for a bowl of red soup. And because of that, Jacob becomes the son of the promise, the son of the blessing, the son of the birthright. And there is enmity between these two brothers, and then as they have children and grandchildren and more grandchildren, there's enmity between these two nations forever. I want to show, a few, show you a few pictures of um, Edom today. Um, does anybody here have any Edomite blood in there? Has anybody ever done those ancestry tests? And has anybody got any Edomite blood, or is any... Anybody from Edom? Okay. Um, just to check and see, it's today it's in the nation. There is no more land of Edom. That's uh, part of why I think it's a difficult study. We can't relate it to anything because it's been destroyed. But it's today the, in the nation of Jordan. The, their capital city is still one of the World Heritage Sites. There are three paths to get into this capital city of Petra. And all three look very much like that. To, to get there, you have to wind yourself back and forth, back and forth, up the mountain and through these high-walled caves. Could you imagine how easy it would be to defend this path? How just a few men with, short, with uh, 
shields and spears could defend that. You could put up a barricade and you could block out an entire army from coming. Uh, the next picture shows, you may be familiar with one of the buildings there. It was used in the Indiana Jones, the third movie. Now, rest assured, in, the, in that movie it was destroyed, but it was only a set that was destroyed. Petra still stands. Uh, the next picture shows you a little bit of scale because those first buildings you come to when you enter are built right into the mountainside. So you can see why they would think no matter how hard you attack us, no matter how many arrows you shoot or how many swords you bring, we're going to defend ourselves. Um, the next picture shows you then beyond that, there was a massive city. You can see lots of government buildings, lots of places where people lived and worked. And they'd built their nation up on top. And Edom was one of these nations that thought we could go out and we could attack anybody, any of our neighbors, north, south, east, or west. And if the battle goes poorly, we can always run home and we'll be defended. They thought because of what they had done, because of how great they were, that they were indestructible. And I think there's a message here for us today. So as we walk through Obadiah, let's be asking ourselves the questions. What made God so mad? In this book, you're going to see God gets very angry with these people. And he says, I will destroy you from the face of the earth. The question I asked earlier was a trick question. Anybody here from Edom? Um, no, they were all destroyed. Um, there is no more. And also, I want us to be asking, what is it we can be, do to make sure that we don't repeat their mistakes? Would you bow with me as we pray? Father and our God, we come very humbly before you now asking you that you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to understand this passage of Scripture. Father, please let us know what you would have us hear today, and let us have the courage to hear it and to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something about talking to you people makes me a little bit nervous, so... I mean, wish you guys could just tone it down a little bit, maybe. <laughs> All right, let's read together from Obadiah, verses 1 through 6. Um, so short of a book, there's no chapters. It's just divided into verses. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go to battle against her. I'm sorry, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. God's using a word picture here saying, I've sent an ambassador to every country on earth. And there in verse 1, he says, and I've called all the nations to go to war against you. And guess what? They've responded. You're about to be destroyed on all sides, Edom. Verse 3, he says, look, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart. You think that because you've built such a great nation, you think that you are so numerous, that you have alliances with all of your, your neighbors, that you cannot be destroyed. But I will show the world something. 
when even those that are indestructible will be destroyed. Um, say with me if you know Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride comes before the fall. Every nation on earth that's ever been created has been destroyed. You know, our nation's not even 250 years old yet, and we are the oldest nation on earth. Every individual God has created has died. There is an end, and we cannot think that because we are so good or we are so great or we have made these wonderful preparations that we do not need God in our lives to be our protector and to be our savior. In verse 4, they, it says there that they trust what they had built, and they do not trust in God. 5 and 6 is a little bit difficult to understand, so I'll take a second, where he says, um, the, if thieves, when thieves come to steal from your house or to steal from your grapevine, um, it'd be better for you if you had thieves come. What he's saying there is um, that when thieves come to rob you, they just take what they want. Um, if they're going to rob from your field or from your house, they're, they're in a hurry. They don't want to get caught. They don't want to get stopped. They just grab what they want, and they go. But, oh, Esau, you should have it so good. Because when you get ransacked, they're going to destroy everything, and they're going to kill everyone. Let's continue on. Verses 7 through 9. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timon, will be terrified. Timon was the grandson of Edom, and so sometimes he calls the nation by that name. It says, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. He says, you'll be deserted, you'll be tricked by your enemies. Why would God say that? Because that's exactly what they had done. You see, here's the, the offense that the Edomites had against God, was that they were, remember, they were the brother of Israel. They were the cousins. You know, the sons of a brother are called cousins, and the next generation, second cousins, third cousins. They were family. And they were right next door. They had an alliance with God's people. There were some great powers at that time, to the north, Assyria, to the east, Babylon, to the west, Egypt. And these little nations in the middle had made alliances. Hey, if some, we get attacked, you come and help us. Or if you get attacked, we'll come and help you. And that's how these smaller nations like Israel were able to survive. They had an alliance with Edom. And when the Assyrians came to attack, did the Edomites show up for battle? Yes, they did. But you know what they did? They fought for the other side. They teamed up with the enemies of Israel. They attacked them. They plundered them. They took some as slaves. And they took some of their territory from them. And, and God is saying, just what you did to my people, you made an alliance, and then you tricked them. Those who you trust are going to trick you and destroy you. He says there in the one verse, in verse 7, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. What does it mean, those who eat your bread? Well, those who took your money. You paid them to protect you, and then when it comes time, what are they going to do? They're going to turn their backs on you. 
Can you imagine how, after receiving this prophecy, how the Edomites, you'd, you'd fear everyone, wouldn't you? If you were told that you would be destroyed and part of the destruction would come from the guy standing beside you, you'd look around pretty closely at the guy beside you. God hates liars. God hates deceivers. God hates those who profit from others' destruction. He once had favored Edom. Even though Edom was not, Esau was not the son of the promise, God blessed him. He took this one man who was childless and made him into a great and powerful nation. God was with him and provided for him. But God has had it up to here. And he's ready to destroy. And let's continue on. Because of the violence, he says in verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloft while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity. In the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. It takes a lot to get God to this point, doesn't it? Has anybody in here ever lost their temper? Have you ever said it so many times you're not going to say it one more time? <laughs> Have you ever been up to here with somebody's behavior or attitude? We are created in the image of God. And so we understand. But he has gotten to this point where he is saying, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to destroy you no matter what. And we've seen this, God, in other parts of Scripture. We've seen it when he dealt with Cain, when he dealt with Saul, the first king of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, and eventually in the book of Revelation, we're told of a God. And like we said, we don't know the full mind of God unless we study all of these prophets. We're seeing a God who can get it up to here, even with people that he favors. Verses 11 and 12, and he says, You stood aloof and gloated over my people's destruction. Verse 14, he says, You stood at the crossroads, and some of the people that were running away, now why would they be running towards Edom? Because they've had an alliance with this stronghold. They could have gone to this Petra and been protected. And in the crossroads on the way there, what did they do? They cut down some of them, and then they took others as slaves. I find two great truths as we walk through this book, Obadiah. The first great truth I find is we must not rejoice in others' failures. Do not rejoice in others' failures. We're told a rising tide raises all ships and a sinking tide lowers all ships. I think John Donne says it best in his poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls. When he writes, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were, any man's death diminishes me. 
because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. God created us to be in relationships. First and foremost, a relationship with him. And then he put us into families on purpose. Put us into our nuclear family and then into an extended family. And we're to have a relationship, to be there, to encourage, to help, to, to help through the times of struggle. He put us in communities. He put us in churches. He put us in groups. He put us into nations. And our job is to be there for each other, not just those who like us or those who look like us, but to be there for each other. What is the role of Satan in this world? His role is to divide, to accuse, to make jealous, to kick us when we are down. But what is the role of the Holy Spirit? It's quite the opposite, isn't it? It's to unite us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to pick us up when we are down and dust us off. And the question I have for the church this morning is, whose job are you doing? Whose job are you doing? Let's finish the text. Verses 15 through 18. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Remember, Joseph was the oldest son, the favorite son. I'm sorry, not the oldest. He was the favorite son, um, the son of the uh, double blessing of Jacob. Esau will be a stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. He begins this text with, the day of the Lord is near. Question, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? The day of the Lord is near. When Christ returns, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Yeah, it depends on what side you're on, doesn't it? Some will say it's the greatest day. Some, some would say the Lord is near, praise God. But others will say the Lord is near, uh-oh. And then he gives us a great biblical principle. As you have done, it will be done to you. That was the Jewish uh, part of the Jewish law. We would say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if somebody pokes out my eye, guess what I get to do to them? Poke out their eye. If they knock out a tooth, I get to knock out a tooth. If they accidentally kill one of my cattle, I get to accidentally... <laughs> kill one of their cattle Jesus took it uh, a step further when he says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets remember that's the entire Bible he says if you had to take the whole Bible and boil it down to one sentence here's, that, here's what that sentence would be we call it today the golden rule do to others as you would have them do to you.
You see, our God is a God who loves justice. And that's at the same time is wonderful and scary. I, I know whenever we're upset with God and we feel like we're not getting what we deserve, we're like, God, it's not fair. It's not fair. I want what I deserve. But I say, praise God, I don't get what I deserve. Verses 16 and 17 is a tough passage to understand. He says, you, you drank on your, on your mountain. Well, and I'm going to drink on my mountain one day. I think what he's trying to say is I really had to look at like three different commentaries to fully understand what he's saying here. But in 16 and 17, you'll see he says, you guys drank and drank and drank on your mountain. He's saying that you celebrated when you were treacherous with my people, when you joined in with the enemy, and you took the plunder and destruction and the slaves of my people, you had a big party and you drank. But he says, I'm going to drink a cup on my mountain. It won't be on your mountain. It'll be my Mount Zion. Zion is the mountain Jerusalem is built on. And he says, I will rebuild my people. Remember, uh, drinking of the cup was the way at that time they showed making of a commitment. You remember when a husband and a wife were married, he would take a drink and she would drink. Jesus, with his disciples in the upper room, passed the cup and asked them all to take a drink from it. It wasn't because they were thirsty. It was because he wanted them to join in this commitment of this blood of the new covenant. It's what we today call communion. And he says, I'm going to drink a cup to your destruction on my mountain. My people will be rebuilt and yours won't. Then he ends with a really colorful word picture. He says, Jacob, my people will be a fire and you, you your people will be stubble. Question for you. What relationship does fire have with stubble? pretty one-sided isn't it <laughs> it's about the same as the relationship a hammer has with a nail um, he says my my people will be rebuilt and your people will be destroyed i have a second great truth that i want to share before we call it a day and that is we are our brother's keepers we are our brother's keepers you remember that question was first asked in genesis 4 when cain was jealous of his brother's sacrifice being acceptable to God. And so he kills his brother. And God made it a habit of walking and talking with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And he comes to his brother the next day and says, Hey, I've been looking for Abel. Can't find him anywhere. I'd like to talk to him. Do you know where he is? And Cain asked this question. Am I my brother's keeper? And ever since that day until today, heaven screams, Yes! Yes, you are your brother's keeper. He put us in families for a reason. We're to be there for each other. We're to be there to encourage, to help, to not be treacherous, to not delight in their downfall, but to be there to help them, especially when they needed it most. What was Edom's biggest sin? They weren't there for their brother. They said they would be, and they weren't. What's the punishment? God says, I'm done with you. I put up with this much. I can't take it anymore. I asked you earlier at the beginning of the message if you had a sibling or if you had somebody in your family that you had strife with or conflict with, and every hand went up. What should we do when we have strife in our family? Have patience. Persevere. Encourage. Do the work of the Holy Spirit the one who came to encourage comfort 
give joy, peace, patience, kindness, and long-suffering. I want to conclude with a word from the Proverbs. 1717, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Solomon was so wise, wasn't he? He wrote this so that we can understand it two different ways. I think the easiest way to understand it is, well, a friend is always there for you. They're going to love you all the time. But your brother, is your brother going to love you all the time? No, because there's times you're wrong. (laughs) There's times you need someone to correct you. Friends many times don't tell us really what we need to hear. You know, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, God gives us family so that we'll have somebody who's there to give us that tough message. But I think he's also saying, a friend loves at all times. But when, when the going gets tough, a friend may back out. Your brother is there because your brother will be there for you in, in adversity. When the time is tough, you can count on your family. We better check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Thank you so much for being patient and listening to God's word. I I know it was a a tough read, a tough uh, sermon, but man, I think there's good stuff there, stuff we need to hear, stuff that God wants us to hear and understand and apply. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've got a decision that you'd like to make, we ask you to do so as we stand and as we sing.